to the Very Well Mind podcast. We've interviewed over 100 authors, experts, entrepreneurs, athletes, musicians, and others to help you learn strategies to care for your mental health. This episode is hosted by psychotherapist and best-selling author Amy Morin. Now let's get into the episode. Have you ever felt overwhelmed about how to get mental health treatment for yourself or for a loved one? Have you ever thought treatment might work for other people, but just not for you? Do you ever question if you're going to feel better? If you answered yes to any of those questions, this episode is for you. I'm talking to Johnny Crowder. Johnny has an incredible story. He experienced major problems with mental illness, and for a long time, he couldn't find any treatment options that worked. There were times when he felt completely hopeless and he thought he would never feel better. He even attempted suicide. But fortunately, Johnny survived and he eventually found treatment strategies that work for him. And now he's the CEO of a mental health company and he travels the world speaking to audiences about mental health. He's got a popular TEDx talk that has been viewed more than 1 million times. Johnny's story is one that I think you'll like. It's filled with hope and shows that sometimes the path to treatment is kind of winding and untraditional. And what eventually helps people the most doesn't always have to be found inside a therapist's office. He explains how he changed his brain with a variety of methods, and now he's inspired to help other people. Some of the things he talks about today are how he finally found a therapist that he found helpful, the non-traditional forms of treatment that helped him heal, and the steps he continues to take to manage his mental health. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode for The Therapist's Take. It's the part of the show where I'll give you my take on Johnny's strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. So here's Johnny Crowder on how to find the mental health resources that work for you. Johnny Crowder, welcome to the Very Well Mind podcast. Thank you for having me on your boat. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, I love your story because so many people tend to separate mental health from work these days. You found a way to make mental health essentially your job, right? Yeah, that was definitely an M. Night Shyamalan type plot twist in my life. I never, never saw it coming. So before we get into what it is that you do and how you're helping people, I'd love to hear a bit about your backstory because your idea for how to help people now really stems from what you noticed in your background about what wasn't working in the mental health industry, right? Yeah. I So the short version, I always have trouble summing up my 30 years in 30 seconds, but I'll do my right. best to do it now. Basically, I, I grew up in desperate need of mental health resources, but so vehemently against using any of them. I didn't like the idea of therapy or medication. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want to journal. There was this, um, if you can't tell by looking at me, I am from the DIY punk hardcore metal kind of subculture. And I was like, I can do it myself. So it made it really challenging once my mental illness started becoming so debilitating that I couldn't function. Because around my early teenage years, I had to wrestle with this idea that maybe I can't do it on my own. And it was this very slow, gradual fight through a bunch of different resources until I found a mix that worked for me. But I couldn't help but think, if it's this hard for everybody, no wonder most people don't use resources. 
Yeah, absolutely. And for people who are listening and aren't watching the video, I want to explain to them, Johnny's covered in tattoos and he's <laughs> sitting in a room where one wall is covered in sneakers and the other one's covered in guitars. So, <laughs> and he speaks quite openly about the fact that he comes from uh, his mental health background from personal experience as opposed yeah. to a lengthy list of degrees and education, right? Yeah, but also in a weird way, not for lack of trying, because I did go to school for psych, but my band got signed while I was in school. So I was oh, earning my psych degree on tour with my band. So my original idea was to never go to college, but I had a scholarship. So I figured if I'm going, why not learn about the one thing that is affecting my life on a daily basis? And that kind of catalyzed my love on the provider and treatment side of psychology. Because before I thought doctors were the enemy. And then as I got older, I'm like, no, maybe science is onto something. <laughs> so my life experience is sort of the opposite. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go into therapy and I'm going to become a therapist and learn, learn about it that way. Teach everybody what I learned in college. And then my 20s were like this series of uh, horrible events. My mom died. My husband died. My uh, father-in-law passed away. I lost a foster wow. child. Like the list went on and on. And it was really my personal experience that then taught me, yeah, sometimes traditional therapy isn't the end-all be-all for people. And there's so many other things out there and so many needs that aren't filled that I learned so much from as well. When you started therapy like as a kid, right? No, I, so I should have. Okay. I was treatment resistant for as long as humanly possible. So I was, for context, I was hallucinating and self-harming as a toddler. And that continued all throughout elementary, all throughout middle until high school. I couldn't make eye contact. I couldn't touch people. I couldn't walk downstairs. I couldn't step on cracks. Like I was becoming more or less of a shut-in. I wasn't able to function on a daily basis. And um, I didn't start treatment until my mid-teenage years when I basically lost the ability to um, live a life. And it was not my own decision. I actually ran away from home. And upon returning, because I was a kid and didn't have like food or money or I had no plan. And when I came back, my mom said, more or less, either I can take you to the hospital right now and we can help you know start that process for you or i can call the police and they can take you to the hospital and for me that was an easy decision because i was like wow if i have to go either way i'd rather go in the back seat of my mom's car absolutely okay but obviously wasn't your decision it was no <laughs> i w i sometimes i wish i could tell that story though like you know i i listen to ted talks all the time and I hear some people say, you know, I woke up one day and I decided enough was enough and I was going to change. And for me, it was like I punched a hole in the wall and ran away from home and then came back and my mom was like, listen, either either this or that. So it was, it's much less like self-aggrandizing as a story I wish I could tell, which is like, I stood up, you know? Right. You know, interestingly, my job in college um, for a long time was I worked at a homeless shelter for teenagers. And it was mm -hmm. like the kids who then took the third option of I'm not going to the hospital, but they ended up in a, a low barrier homeless shelter, which a lot of people are like, wait, we have homeless shelters for people under 18? We do. Wow. And very sad experience for young people who like would go up and go to school. And a lot of them were just humiliated that they lived in a homeless shelter. So they'd you know mm. go out the back door and try to walk around the block so that nobody would see where they were coming from. But definitely not a good experience 
in that situation either. So we have this huge gap for young people, I think, in terms of what we offer them. But so then what happens next? You go to the hospital and then what? Well, the, the, I met with a few clinicians. I was not the most cooperative client. I'll say that in the nicest way possible. I was, I was very disrespectful and I also did not take any of these clinicians seriously. So I would walk in and think, oh, so you got a diploma on your wall. And so you drove a Mercedes here. And so you live in a four bedroom home in the nice part of town. And I'm sure that in your nice nuclear family, you totally understand what I'm going through with abusive parents and loss and, and schizophrenia. I'm sure that you get it. And so there I'm sitting in this office and there's someone sitting across from me asking me questions and then drawing conclusions saying, well, it sounds like you are experiencing some of the symptoms associated with bipolar disorder, with PTSD, with schizophrenia, with um, anxiety or depression. And I heard them all as insults. So it took me many visits to get past this idea that they were insulting me and closer to this idea of they're actually trying to help give shape to what I'm experiencing so that I can take action. Yeah, I could say as a therapist too, I think one of the most difficult uh, places to be sometimes is when a mom would call and say, I'm bringing my 15-year-old son into therapy. He doesn't want to be here, but I'm dragging him in there. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, hey. <laughs> right, right. It's really a difficult place to be. They didn't want to be there. Um, didn't want to talk. And it's hard to, to help somebody um, in that position. So often the work was more with the family than it was with, with uh, the teenager anyway. And then at what point did you start to get better? Like what kinds of things eventually did help you? Well, I'm a huge champion for health education. I consider that to be partially the field that I work in now. Um, because when I was in high school, I started taking, uh, I was in the IB program and you were able to elect. There was like, there weren't traditional electives like um, trumpet or sculpting or whatever. It was more like, they were very limited. And one of the electives was psychology. And I was like, man, if I'm going to have to learn all this crap through therapy anyway, I might as well use some time at school. Because at this point, I was getting really curious. I And it, there was almost this part of me that thought, well, those doctors don't know anything, which is a hilarious thought for a teenager to have. Like I know, I, with two years of psychology classes, I could probably learn more than a doctor. So I really started focusing in on... It was actually the class that I was excelling the most in because I was the most invested. And I was actually reading a textbook with interest. I was like, oh, no way. Or that's how the brain works or what? So I was getting really excited. And it actually, that's what started empowering me to start participating in my treatment, to start taking actions outside of my treatment that would benefit my health and even taking better care of my physical body, like trying to maintain better sleep and drink more water. Like I credit a lot of my resistance to care was just a lack of health education. And it made me really almost excited to learn more about the brain because it felt like the more I learned, the more equipped I was to combat the symptoms that I was facing. Yeah. And I wish we taught that from younger grades, right? The simple things about taking care of your mental health and the taking care of your body, sleeping, exercising. And it was an election or it was an elective too. So a majority of students did not take that. Right. Which is mind blowing. Right. And then you think of how much it can change your life. And I don't care what 
field you go into or what you decide to do after school, become a person who's involved in sales or customer service or mm -hmm. any career area, just understanding a little bit more about psychology can certainly help. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. So then after that, like what did you find helpful in terms of treatment and starting to get better? And how did you get to be to where you are today? So I started medication. So I've never used drugs or alcohol in my entire life. I, it's if you are listening to this and you're curious about what on earth would compel somebody to never drink or smoke or do anything, I encourage you to Google a subculture called Straight Edge. That's something that I got involved with um, in like the hardcore and punk and metal community, which is basically, it's a subculture inside of a subculture. And um, a lot of people associate metal and hardcore and punk with like getting drunk and doing drugs and like destroying property and all these connotations and um, there was a movement inside of that that was like, no, we're going to protect our bodies. Our bodies are are valuable. They are our own. So that really appealed to me at a young age because I grew up around drugs and alcohol and I saw how it affected my friends and family and didn't want that to happen in my own life. So then you got to think, I'm sitting in this doctor's office and they're like, we want you to take this antipsychotic medication. I'm like, no, no, no. I don't think you're going to trick me. So I was actually really resistant to medication at first. And then for a few years, I couldn't find the right mix of medication. So I would wean onto one, experience unreal side effects, um, and then not really any improvement in my symptoms. And then I would wean off of that one and wean onto another one. This took years. Um, but I think a big part of it was I was so scared of what was happening to me. And I was so scared to bring up that a medication wasn't working because the experience of weaning on to a medication and weaning off was so destructive to me. It was, I was snapping at people. I wasn't acting like myself. I was gaining and losing a bunch of weight. I was sleeping not enough or way too much. And the idea of going to my doctor and saying, this isn't working, I want to try a new one. I thought, great. I just signed myself up for another few months of complete volatility as I wean off of medication and onto a new one. And therapy also at first, I was not the most engaged. But I will say two things that really helped um, catalyze some forward progress in my treatment journey was number one, I started telling my doctor when medication was not working. I, for the first couple years, I just kept my mouth shut. I didn't want to have to go through weaning on and weaning off. And at a certain point, I started realizing it was probably worse to stay on a medication that wasn't working for me than to try a new one. And I figured how many medications are there? If I keep trying, maybe I actually will find the one. So that was one thing that helped was actually being really communicative with my psychiatrist about how things were affecting my sleep, my sex drive, my hunger, um, my focus. And then the second thing was, I had a therapist that it was, I had tried a few therapists. And this therapist that I had at this time, this was kind of late high school, I met a therapist who treated me like a person and wasn't like, oh, poor baby. Or like, oh, what are we going to do with you? That must be so hard. She was very almost like frank and straightforward. And she's like, yeah, that that sucks. Like, that's brutal. And I'm like, yeah, it is. And then we could move past it instead of me feeling sort of coddled and spoken down to. So that was really transformative too. She was probably my fourth 
therapist and one that I actually stayed with the longest out of any of my high school therapists. Interesting. So a couple of things that you said there. there I like that you talked about medication because a lot of people are uh, hesitant to try medication. And then just as you say, when it doesn't work, I encountered so many people over the years who would come into my therapy office and be like, well, it's really not working. But sometimes they didn't want to tell the doctor because they were afraid the doctor would feel bad. So like they didn't want to hurt the doctor's feelings. <laughs> Other times people are like, you know, I kind of missed a few doses and that might be why it's not working. But yeah. I don't dare say that. At other times, people would say just that, like, gosh, you know, it takes four to six weeks to find out if this med is working. And now we have to decide, do we up the dose or do we try something else? And then it's a, a long process. I feel like we're getting to a point where we will be able to be better at pinpointing the medications that work for people, but we're not quite there yet. And so sometimes it is that trial and error and you have to convince people who are struggling, hang in there just a little bit longer. And that's tough to do, right? Yeah, I think with, I used this uh, explanation the other day about medication. And the same was true with therapy and with a lot of other things. Um, I think some people try, uh, they're like, I want to try Italian food. And then they get a bag of Totino's pizza rolls from Walmart and they throw them in the microwave and they have them and they're like, meh, Italian food's okay. And I always think, oh, but that's not necessarily representative of like all Italian food. Like there's so many other types of food. There's other brands, there's restaurants. Like I really think you should give it another go. And I think my first few interactions with therapy and medication were kind of like that, where I'm like, eh, medication might not be for me or therapy might not be for me. And then as I was reading um, in these textbooks in class, I was like, oh, maybe it was the medication I was taking, or maybe it was the therapist I was seeing or the methodology that therapist was using. So it actually gave me a little bit more hope knowing that there were other things out there that I hadn't tried. And then I started getting really excited about, you know, I might have only tried 1% of the available options out there. There's got to be stuff out there that can actually make a big difference for me. Yeah. And I like that you say that about a therapist that you found them that worked for you. When they've done studies on what helps people get better in therapy, they were looking at like, you know, what type of therapy works best, cognitive behavioral therapy or EMDR, or what sort of treatments are most helpful. In the end, they found that the type of treatment actually matters far less than the person's relationship with the therapist. If you like your therapist and you trust your therapist, no matter what kinds of treatments they use, you'll probably get better. <laughs> and what an astounding thing, right? You just need somebody that you can trust, somebody that you can talk to, somebody that listens and for you to mm -hmm. feel heard. And then as you say, then you can move on and talk about the important issues. I think something that was really helpful for me too with that therapist in particular is so the first, I'll never forget this dude. So this was my first interaction with this therapist, my first time at her office. And I walk in, we're walking, there's the waiting room and then there's a hall that goes down to her office. And down the hall, there's a bathroom on your left. So as we're, she comes out and is like Johnny Crowder and I'm like, yes, that's me. And so she says, follow me. And I'm following her down the the hall and the door to the bathroom is open. And she knew that I was there for OCD. That was one of the things that we we're going to discuss. And she said, I'll never forget this. And it made me burst out laughing, but also really afraid at the same time. She said, by the end of, by the time I'm done with you, you're going to be dunking biscuits in this toilet right here. <laughs> and I was like, I laughed, but then I was like freaked out. Like, oh no, is that part of the treatment? Is that I'm going to have to right. like dip biscuits in a public toilet? And then as we, as I got in, it kind of spooked me thinking that we're going to do a ton of exposure therapy and I'm going to be so overwhelmed. 
And then what actually happened was we spent probably three months just talking about what types of exposure we were going to try. And then we spent probably six months stepping up the exposure so incrementally, like just as an example, she would, I'm dating myself a little bit, I would bring my big brick iPod that was like the size of a Game Boy. And I carried it everywhere with me. And so what we would do at this time, I couldn't touch people. I hadn't touched a person in probably six years, uh, like no hugs or handshakes or high fives or anything. And so one thing that we did, and I'm telling you this to illustrate just how accommodating she was in the pace that I wanted to move in. She said, because you won't touch me, uh, if you want, we can put your iPad on the table so it's neutral. Then I will hold it in my hand for 15 seconds. We'll put it on the table for three minutes so it can reset to baseline. And then you'll hold it in your hand for 15 seconds. And then we would slowly close that gap where eventually after, I'm serious, weeks, maybe months, we got to the point where I could take the iPod from her hand and put it into my hand directly. So no table, no reset. And it was it felt like my hand was going to explode. Like I can't explain what it felt like, but we moved so incrementally. And I think other therapists were not willing to move at that pace, but she was so incredibly patient with me that it made me feel like she was actually trying to help, not just that she was supposed to. Right. So a therapist that comes to the waiting room to try to shake your hand on day one, that would not have worked out for you, but you found somebody who who knew, okay, we're going to move at this pace. And I think it's important for people to feel empowered to know you can switch therapists if you have one that doesn't work. Oh, yeah. you, can, you can give them feedback too. A good therapist should ask you, is this working for you? Or what do you like? What do you not like? Do you feel heard? Do you not feel heard? Are there things that you wish I had done differently? And mm. a good therapist will ask you those sorts of questions so that you know, like, yeah, I'm in power. This is my time. So a lot of people will say to me like, oh, I don't want to talk about my childhood. Well, they don't force you to. You can talk about whatever you want when you go in there and they yeah. might encourage you to at some point, but you don't have to do things you don't want to do. Or if you really don't like it, get up and walk out. When people know you're in control, that they aren't going to force you to sit there and talk. They can't make you do anything. Sometimes people feel like, oh yeah, this is up to me to make what I want out of therapy. Yeah, there's there's a patient empowerment piece or a client empowerment piece in there that I think anyone who's been listening to this conversation so far is probably hearing us circle around it. But the fact is, you are paying the person. They and they work for you in that time. If you say, I'm not comfortable with that, or we're not moving at the pace that I want, or this medication is not working for me, that is 100% within your right. And where I would get in my head is I would think, well, they're the doctor. right? They're the professional. They're the therapist. But they are not inside of you so there's some element of your lived experience that they can't understand from a textbook. It's your job to communicate that to them as clearly as possible. And I did so much deferring to the professional that I think I did, a, did myself a disservice in my early years of treatment. I wasn't, I, I wasn't bold. I wouldn't speak up. Yeah, there's that balance to be struck because obviously you don't want to walk in there like, no, I know everything and here I am. And if you yep. prescribe me that medicine or tell me to try something, I'm not going to try it because it won't work for me. But then on the other end of the spectrum is when we're like, okay, tell me what to do. And then we don't interject or offer our own advice or opinion or experience. And they don't really understand what's going on. So I like that, that we're somewhere, it's up to us to be empowered to say, here's what's going on with me. Here's what I'm willing to do. Here's what I'm not willing to do. And that's mm -hmm. okay to say those things. 
outside of traditional treatment, what did you find was helpful for your mental health? So if anyone is listening to this and has not tried listening to metal, <laughs> it has been so cathartic for me. Um, I love all forms of art. So at the time, especially when we're zooming back to high school and college. So this is my early treatment days where I'm still trying to get to like a baseline level of functionality. Painting helped me so much. I did a lot of pastel art. I wrote vehemently. So I was writing poems and short stories, songs. I was playing guitar regularly. I was singing. All of these artistic endeavors. I mean, for every hour I spent in a traditional treatment setting, I was spending 20 hours engaged in non-treatment wellness activities. And I would put art probably at the very top of that list in all of its different forms, either actually listening to music or creating music, uh, reading good writing or creating good writing. And then also immediately underneath that, I would say um, comedy helped me a lot. Like not only listening to and, and watching comedy, but also I did, I was performing, learning to perform and write comedy. And then right underneath that and the relationships therein through art and through comedy, you, you form great interpersonal relationships. And then the third thing right underneath that in that era that helped me a lot was physical activity, like using my body to be active. I can't explain. I know there's a bunch of cool hormonal stuff that we could get into around exercise, but just let's talk about the base level feeling of how I felt. I will say this, I'll end on this because I, I can definitely rant on these three things, but I'll say this. When I was living with severe, severe symptoms, I felt powerless and exercise made me feel powerful. If I can lift this thing and put it back down, if I can climb this ladder, if I can run this fast, it made me feel capable and there's such an intangible value in that than taking it back into a care setting and being willing to put in the work and speak up for myself because I'm like, I bench pressed this week. I know I can do this, you know? Yeah. Oh, I love that. I absolutely love that. And I think for, I'm a big fan of um, lifting weights and exercise too, because that's what helps me. And for people to know that there are some universal things, like we know exercise definitely helps a lot of people. And then you say metal. Metal may not help everybody, but it helps you. For people to explore, right? Like I used to work at a, a community mental health center where we had a garden. And for some people, just being out in the garden was their thing. And they would come and just volunteer to work in the garden all the time because being in nature helped their mental health. But for somebody yeah. else who doesn't want to be outside in the sun and there's bugs, maybe knitting was their thing. And they found that to be therapeutic. So how did you discover what works for you? Because I always encourage people, explore, experiment, but sometimes it's hard to know what, what's going to help me feel my best. How did you figure it out? So first of all, I think initially it was not super conscious. So certain things just kind of drew me to them, like music had always drawn me to it, art. But then I only realized it's sort of like a therapeutic, rejuvenative components when I was going through what I was going through. And my health education was rounding out, oh, maybe I'm doing this because X, or maybe, maybe I'm drawn to this because Y. So that is one part. But the second thing is, I have always been a huge proponent of trying stuff and trying stuff that you 
are not super certain whether or not you like. Like right now, I go to car shows every single weekend. I love cars. I have you can't see it, but my desktop background is a Ferrari La Ferrari. And the background on my computer is a Porsche 918 Spider. And I have two model cars right behind my computer. And cars are exciting and interesting to me. But if you would have quizzed me before I went to a car show, before I got into cars, if cars would be my thing, I'd go, I don't probably, I doubt it. But I had never had firsthand experience. So if you've never tried kickboxing, if you've never tried cooking classes, if you've never tried candle making or ultimate ninja warrior gyms, like just try stuff. I went to um, a mountain, like indoor mountain climbing place or you know what I'm talking about? The Yeah, walls. the climbing wall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I went, not joking, went there with a friend, uh, put on the special shoes, uh, put on the hand stuff. And then I go to get on the wall and I was like, I don't like this. I'm afraid. And then I went back and got a refund and I sat there while my friend climbed. But I went. Right. And I think... I I always encourage people to like, you don't know if you like something until you're like on the wall. So go be on the wall. And if you don't like it, that's fine because there's infinity other things out there that you might. Yeah, I think we're really bad at predicting what we're going to like. And but we make those predictions and then we stick to them. So somebody might say, oh, no, I don't I don't like climbing a mountain. I don't like activity. But until you try it, you don't know whether you're going to find it helpful or not. And you don't have to be good mm. at it to find it therapeutic. Boom. If you start playing the guitar, you might be terrible at it for a really long time, but that doesn't mean it can't still be helpful. I love removing the achievement component from it. Like I, I have a desire to be like the best vocalist in the world or um, the, the, most, the most desired keynote speaker in the world. I, I have achievement goals associated with those things. But when I play pickleball with my friends, I'm not thinking I need to be a top tier, all national pickleball player. I'm just like, this is kind of fun. And I'm okay. Right. I, I mess up a lot. But it once you remove the achievement part from something that you can... I think you can only use something purely therapeutically if the achievement component is removed. And then as the achievement component starts creeping in, it becomes less therapeutic and more like anything else in your life. I think so too. Absolutely. So before we go though, I want to explain what you did. You found a gap in the mental health system and then decided you were going to solve this problem. Can you talk about that? Yeah. The, the way you just phrase that is like, wow, how, <laughs> how bold to be like, yeah, <laughs> of course it's a 25 year old with a face tattoo. In, it's, a, it's a Florida man problem to solve. Um, no, I, I, so I think something that really stuck with me. So I went to school for psychology, like I said, and I was studying neuroscience and how the brain changes. And I was also studying abnormal psychology. So I was learning a lot about neuroplasticity and how the brain can form new normals, how it is forming habits all the time and how you can sort of guide those habits. So I was really interested in the whole idea of how your brain can change and mechanically what's happening there. But then I was in my college years, later college years, I was getting involved in peer support, which is basically, um, let's say that you live with bipolar one and I live with bipolar one and we have a conversation. And in that moment, we are peers, even if 
um, generationally we are different or culturally we are different or we have two different career paths. What matters in that moment is that, that it's a peer support conversation in part because we both have similar lived experience with mental illness. So I was really moved by peer support. And what I noticed was all of the peer support style resources didn't seem super, at least at the time, might be different now, but a lot of the peer support resources that I tried to utilize were either um, not clinical enough. Like it seemed like, oh, we're kind of all sitting around talking about how stuff is hard, but there's nothing really actionable here. And I'm not leaving with a more clear idea of what I can do in the future. Um, or they weren't scalable in that like we live in a country where we have scaled how we get boxes of Fruit Loops to gas stations all over the country. We figured that out. But then if you want to have a peer support conversation, it's one to one. Right. Or maybe in a group, it's 10 to one. But at some point, the scale breaks down. So what I was really looking for was the human element of peer support that could be mixed with the more clinically backed neuroscience principles that we know can change the brain over time, but something that could scale. And I think what was most important to me was creating something that reached out to me because I might have a great therapy session, but for the six days and 23 hours in between, it was like pulling teeth to get me to do something for myself. So I wanted a resource that instead of waiting for me to reach out would actually come to me instead. So do you want to explain what Cope Notes is? I think that might have been what you originally asked me. So I apologize if I missed the mark, but I, I get so passionate about this continuum of care style topic because it kept me from being well for so long. But essentially what Cope Notes does is we send one randomly timed text message to your phone every day. And you never know when we will text you or what the text will say. But each text is written by a peer with lived experience. So the messages are written by real people. It's not a chatbot or anything. But um, all the text messages contain psychology facts or journaling prompts, exercises, some type of actionable health education content. But the coolest part is that the random timing interrupts negative thought patterns and trains the brain to think in healthier patterns. So it's kind of like guerrilla warfare on your current thought patterns and habits, and something that can sort of automate that slow, steady change to a new default that would be healthier. So I love that. And we'll link to it in our show notes so people can sign up, check it out and learn more. And I love the idea of peer support because it's one thing when a doctor says you should try this medicine for X, Y, and Z. But it's another thing when you can hear from maybe somebody else who's tried that medication and they're like, it helps. And here are some of the side effects I had. And here's how long I had to take it before I noticed a difference. Even in my personal life, I'll find myself turning to like Reddit sometimes to look something up because I want to see on a forum like, well, what about when people have actually tried this specific yeah. thing? What's their experience like? Because I want to know about from real people, not just what somebody else says. Here are the potential pros and cons of this or here are the problems associated with it. It's a different experience when you can listen to, talk to or interact with somebody who's been there and they know what you're talking about. Yeah, I think... By that same token, the pool of people who live with severe mental illness and are willing to talk about their experience with other people can be fairly small. And part of my design with Cope Notes is to serve people who maybe, if you are in that camp and you're not comfortable with your personal information being shared, it is an anonymous resource. But I think beyond that, 
the continuum of care has been focused on serving like where was the continuum of care before my first attempt on my own life? It was like, well, he's not that bad. Or like it, it was like I wasn't sick enough yep. to get support. So at Cope Notes, we're serving people without diagnoses and with. We're serving people with moderate to severe symptoms, but also people with mild to moderate or even no symptoms. And I think that's really cool. I hope, I pray that that's the future of healthcare is not focusing solely on people who are going through something so severe that they are reaching out for support, but rather supporting people the entire time throughout the entire life so that when things do get brutal and challenging, they're more equipped. The one thing I always say is the dental industry has nailed this. Right. You brush your teeth every freaking day. Doesn't matter if you have cavities, doesn't matter if they're pearly white or yellow, doesn't matter if you need a root canal or whatever. Everybody, everybody brushes their teeth every day and we've accepted, well, that's preventative dental health. And I I dream of a world where we view this as preventative mental health and we can say, yeah, I just do a little something for myself every day that takes care of my mental health. I think once we change that narrative, we'll be in a much much better place. Yeah, I love that example too about the dentist because nobody, like if you tell somebody, hey, I'm going to the dentist, nobody's like, oh gosh, what's wrong with your teeth? You just assume maybe you're going to the dentist for a checkup. Yeah. We don't do that with therapy. If you said you're going to a therapist, sometimes people are like, oh, people are going <laughs> to think there's something really wrong with me. And also people aren't embarrassed to say they're going to the dentist or there's no shame yeah. or stigma around it. And so for people to know like, gosh, if only we could treat mental health the very same way, then I think we'd be onto something. And as you say, the preventative measures that we take are super important. So I guess that would be my last question for you in terms of what steps do you take right now to manage your mental health on a daily basis? Oh man, this is, it is a full-time job, folks. I, it, almost my entire life centers around wellness at this point. And it does not feel like a chore because I found things that resonate with me that give me life and energy that are also good for my wellness, which is the sweet spot. It's like, it's kind of like finding a vegetable that you think tastes good. And you're like, oh, this is it. This is my my habitable zone. This is my Goldilocks zone. So for me, um, I guard one thing. I guard my sleep. I am so strict with making sure that I get at least eight hours of sleep. I am the guy who says that I can't go to the birthday party because I need my sleep. I have learned that about myself that... If I am very careful with what I eat and very careful with how much I sleep and how much I exercise, that the mental and emotional ramifications of those decisions, they, they far outweigh the immediate physical ramifications. So I'm very careful with that. I also um, found a wonderful therapist who works with tech founders, which is amazing. Um, so that has been really nice to feel understood in a care setting where if I'm talking about um, funding or employees quitting or, you know, scaling really fast that someone actually understands what I'm talking about. So finding a therapist that gets where you are in your life um, has been really valuable. And then the other thing is, I read, I am fierce about health education. So at least an hour a day, if not two, I am reading or listening to lectures or podcasts or interviews or sermons or um, anything that can teach me, give me more tools to build a healthier lifestyle. And I got to be honest, guys, it is cumulative. 
like each thing that you learn in your health education journey is kind of like a tool in your tool belt. And you will get to a point, like last year, I had a family member who was hospitalized for a suicide attempt, actually. And when that happened, it was extraordinarily difficult. But I also felt like I could look into my tool belt and be like, I have 30 different healthy things that I know I can do for myself to cope with this in a way that sets me up for long-term success, that this doesn't derail my treatment journey and my recovery journey. And that's what I want to encourage people to do is you might not read one book that magically changes everything or listen to one podcast that magically changes everything. But don't forget that each hour you spend learning about yourself and your brain and your wellness and what works and doesn't work, I am telling you, you are building a fortress that will protect you in the future. So please, if, if I could encourage anyone to do anything, just be relentless in your pursuit of um, learning and understanding what works for you. Because when it comes in handy, it will literally save your life. I agree. Johnny Crowder, thank you so much for being on the Very Well Mind podcast. Absolutely. Welcome to The Therapist Take. This is the part of the show where I'll break down Johnny's strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. Here are three of my favorite strategies that Johnny shared. Number one, keep looking for strategies that work for you. Johnny saw several therapists that he didn't find helpful. Fortunately, though, he didn't give up. I hear a lot of people say things like, well, I tried therapy and it didn't work. But just because you didn't get better after seeing one or two therapists doesn't mean therapy won't ever work for you. Every therapist has a different personality, a different set of skills, and a different approach to treatment. If you don't find therapies helping, you can start by talking to that therapist about your expectations or about what's not working for you. And you can always look for a new therapist. You might tell your therapist that you aren't getting what you need, or you might just start looking around for a new therapist to talk to. One of the great things about therapy right now is that there are so many more treatment options than ever. You can find tons of online therapists and services that weren't available a decade ago. Now, I don't think therapy is for everyone. I do hear some people say things like, well, everyone should go to therapy. But I don't think everyone needs to sit in a therapist's office for an hour a week and talk one-on-one. -on -one. There are lots of other things that you can do that could be therapeutic, like listening to this podcast, reading self-help books, going to a support group, joining a religious group, or even doing something like martial arts. The list could go on and on, but the point is, you can find things that help you feel better if you keep experimenting and just stay open to trying new things. Number two, develop a creative outlet. Johnny talked about all the different creative outlets he has now. He enjoys everything from art to being in a band. Creative outlets will do wonders for your mental health, but we often overlook their importance. There's so much emphasis on being productive, on socializing, and getting traditional treatment that someone might not recognize the value in staying home on a Saturday night to draw or just spending a Sunday afternoon writing. If you don't have any creative outlets in your life, try some new things. Whether you like using Photoshop on a computer or you want to paint on a blank canvas, there are lots of ways to find creative outlets that work for you. And number three, get physically active. Johnny says staying physically active helps him manage his symptoms. That's another strategy that is sometimes mentioned, but I don't think always gets the respect it deserves. There's research that shows exercise can sometimes be just as effective at reducing depression as antidepressant medication. Going for a walk, 
Lifting weights or swimming are just a few examples of activities that might greatly improve your mental health. You don't have to join a gym or get involved in a strenuous workout program. In fact, if those things sound terrible to you, don't do them. Find exercise that you like to do and you'll be much more likely to stick to it. That might mean you go hiking or you play tennis or you enjoy kayaking. Johnny happens to like pickleball. It doesn't have to be a formal exercise program, but moving your body can be powerful enough to reduce symptoms of mental illness and it can be a great way to build mental strength. So those are three of Johnny's strategies that I highly recommend. Keep looking for strategies that work for you, develop a creative outlet, and get physically active. To hear more about the company Johnny started that can send you positive text messages, check out copenotes.com, as in C-O-P-E-N-O-T-E-S. Thank you for listening to the Very Well Mind podcast. If you found this episode informative, please share the episode with your friends and family and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the Very Well Mind podcast, you can head to verywellmind.com slash podcast.